Ruth chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. In the days when the judges judged, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Novi, and the names of his kids, or his two sons, were Mala and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Mala and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each of you in the house of her husband. And she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. And we said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and bear sons, would you therefore wait till they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying all my daughters? For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return to your sister-in-law. And Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you, to return from following you. For yet where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people, my people, your God, my God. When you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with him, she said no more. So the two of them looked down until they came to Bethlehem. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. The woman said, Is this Naomi? She said, to them, do not call me them. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against you, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter in law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Word of the Lord can be blessed to our hearts. Well, brothers and sisters, we live in an age where conspiracy theories are extremely popular. No matter which side of the aisle you're on, somebody on your side of the aisle always has a conspiracy theory about who's really running things and how all the world events are going because these people who really control things are running things a certain way and it's all going to be disastrous. But what we realize is we come to the Lord's house we read his word here tonight, the reason our fallen hearts come up with conspiracy theories is because we're really longing for the one master plan that matters. The one master plan that matters. And what plan is that? It's God's plan of salvation that he gave us here in his word tonight. 
It's his plan that he purposed before the world began. And, and he brings it about through all covenant history. And he's revealing it in his word even here. Even here, we're reading God's master plan of salvation. Now, as many of you know, we were here this morning and we looked at the two ways to read scripture. The wrong way and the reform way. <laughs> the wrong way to read scripture, the dare to be a Daniel way, is where you read the text and you come away with 10 to 15 life principles about how to be a Ruth or a Boaz or Naomi. Although, if we look carefully, or, or even get dating advice, this is a popular one for dating advice, right? But if we looked at Ruth 3, we'd probably look at the advice Naomi gives Ruth, and we'd scratch our heads a little bit. And if, if anybody in this church gave that dating advice to their daughter, we would probably get the elders involved. But there's a second way to read scripture, right? And, and that way in Scripture is actually in the very next chunk of Scripture in, in Luke 4. We read the first part of Luke 4 this morning. The very next section is Jesus sitting down in the synagogue and having read the scroll of Isaiah, he says, This day you've heard these Scriptures fulfilled in your hearing. Or, or in John 5, he, he's rebuking the Pharisees. Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees. And in John 5, 39, he says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. You think by just reading these enough, you're going to have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness about me. Christ is on every page of the Old Testament and the New Testament. All the Bible is one big story about him. All the scriptures, including what we're seeing in Ruth, are one big story about God's unfolding plan in history to bring his son, the Messiah, in the world to save his people and even relentlessly pursue them in his goodness and mercy. And even using hardship to do it. Even using hardship to do it. We'll see that tonight. But as we look at our text tonight, we'll see that the text itself is showing us what God is revealing in the story of Ruth. Even in the time of judges judging, amidst all God's people's faithless failures, God's advancing his one plan to send his son. The plan didn't change. It's advancing. And, and as we read our text this, this evening, in the second way, this right way, this reformed way, we'll see that despite God's people's faithlessness in light of his promises, faithlessness in light of his promises, and bitterness in light of his providence, bitterness in light of his providence, God's goodness and mercy relentlessly pursue his people, which means we can trust him to be our God and Savior, because his plan doesn't we're going to look at this in three points this evening. The first is Ellie Malik's faithlessness and the faithless or the faithlessness of Ellie Malik and his family. The faithlessness of Ellie Malik and his family to Naomi's bitterness. Naomi's bitterness. And third, the provision of our God. The provision of our God. So first, we'll look at the faithlessness of Ellie Malik and his family. And we'll look at that in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, ruled or judged, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So the first thing we read is that these things are happening in the days when the judges judged, in the middle of the time when everybody does what's right in their own eyes, and God keeps sending judgments on his people again and again because they're disobeying and they're refusing to do the one thing that would work and repent and believe and obey. 
And they refuse to do the one thing that will save them, which is throw themselves on the mercy of the Lord. In the middle of this time, God's raising up people to save his people. And the problem is they're getting worse and worse, right? We go from Othiel, the best judge. He obeys the Lord. He takes the land by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he and his wife ask for springs of water because they want to settle in this land that God has promised. And so they're fully obedient. They're fully trusting. They're this beautiful picture of what Christ will do. And then we go from Othiel to this, at the end of the book of Judges, right? We, we have this unnamed polygamous Levite, right? He's polygamous, so he's got adultery built right into his lifestyle. He's got a concubine. And he leaves that concubine outside in the middle of the night to be attacked so that he doesn't get attacked. And when she dies, he calls not the Lord. He doesn't go and repent and call on the Lord. He calls on the other tribes of Israel to come commit genocide on the Benjamites. That's how Judges is going on. And in the middle of the time of Judges judging, there's a famine in the land. But this shouldn't surprise us. This is one of the promises God had. He said, blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, God promises there's going to be famine when they're disobeying. But here's the thing. Ellie Malik in the middle of all this is living out a miniature version of what Judges as a whole is showing us and a miniature version of what the Israelites are doing in the time that judges judge. Look at this. In seeking help, Elimelech tries doing everything except the one thing that would work. He goes to sojourn in the land of Moab. Does the text say that Elimelech prayed to the Lord and repented and trusted the Lord and asked the Lord for deliverance? Does it say that Elimelech threw himself on the mercy of the Lord? Does it say that he even followed the law's provisions? in Leviticus 25 and, and sold himself into slavery so that he could stay in the land with God's people by any means necessary? Does Elimelech actively exhaust every option to stay in the land? No, he doesn't. He goes to Moab. And this is a guy whose name is Elimelech. My God is king. What's he doing? He's taking his family out of a place called House of Bread. That's what Bethlehem means. Seems like a good place to expect the Lord to keep his promise to feed his people, his house of bread. He takes them out of house of bread and he takes them to Moab, where God's enemies live. Remember the last time we met the Moabites in the Old Testament? When was the last time? It was, it was Numbers 25. Remember what happened there? The Moabites, they, they come tempt the Israelites. They've already tried to send Balaam to curse them. That didn't work. And so they send these women to tempt the Israelites. And they tempt them to both physical adultery and spiritual adultery in the temple. And they're worshiping the Baals because of these women. And they're committing unspeakable acts. And what happens? God sends his priest to Nahas to come gore two of them to stop this. That's the last time we read about the Moabites. And, and remember what God said in Deuteronomy 23 because they did this? He said, don't let them into the tenth generation. Not to the 10th generation can you let a Moabite in. And where's Elimelech leading to? He's leading them to Moab. He'd rather live in Moab with God's enemies, apart from God's people, trusting in himself, rather than trusting in the Lord and staying with God's people. Because Elimelech would rather live not throwing himself at the mercy of the Lord, but living his best life now in Moab. For Elimelech, it's better than living in the presence of God and in the presence of his people and in the land of God promise. 
So Alan Mellick, the guy whose name means my God is king, is living out on a small scale the reality of what Israel's been doing this whole time. Any king but God. Any help but God's help. Any people but God's people. Any salvation but God's salvation. And, and, and that's assuming Ali Malik even left because he was doing poorly. See, I've, I've, we've already read this, and we've just assumed, well, Ali Malik left because he was starving. That could be. It's probable. But here's another way to read this. Some of the earliest Jewish commentators pick up on what Naomi says in verse 21. What does Naomi say in verse 21? I went out full, and the Lord brought me back. It's possible when she says, I went out full, she really meant it. it it's possible that she's talking just about having a husband and kids, but it's possible that Ellie Mellick left not because he, was, he, did, he didn't want to be helped, but because he didn't want to help. It's possible that he left God's people because he didn't want to help God's people. He didn't obey the Lord. But either way, whether Elimelech left because he didn't want to be helped or because he didn't want to help, either way, Elimelech left because he wanted his help to be in the name of Elimelech. He wanted to be a self-made man. But this is you and me. We live in a culture, we live in the wild, wild west, and what's the legend we tell ourselves? What's the hero we look up to, the myth we create as an example? The cowboy. It's the lone cowboy. Brave adventurer strikes out on his own, takes destiny in his own two hands, and scratches out a living from the bare rock and the dust. That's, what's the poem we teach middle schoolers? What's the poem we teach? This was written by a British guy, but this is a poem I learned in middle school. Out of the night that covers me black as a bit from pole to pole, I think whatever God's may be for my uncomfortable soul. That's skipping down. It matters not how straight gate, how charged with punishments the soul. I am the master of my faith. I am the captain of my soul. Or as, as one popular music told about a famous sounding father puts it, he, the, the main character says, when my prayers to God were met with indifference, I picked up a pen. I wrote my own deliverance. That's the culture we live in. That's the, the myth. That's the hero. It's the self-made man. But is that what God taught us to pray? Is that what Jesus taught us to pray? We pray our, give us this day our daily bread. We're praying, provide for all our physical needs so that we may recognize that you are the only source of our physical good. And that neither our care and work nor your gifts can do us any good without your blessing. Therefore, may we withdraw our trust from all creatures and place it in you alone. When we pray that, we're praying that the Lord would deliver us from the self-idolatry of being a self-made person. We're praying to be saved from ourselves and from this sin of Elimelech by any means necessary. And that the Lord would drive us to say more and more our help is in the name of the Lord. Now as a side note, this is not saying ambition is wrong. It's not wrong for us to work. It's not wrong for us to work hard and to use the talents that God has given us for His glory and our good and our family's good and to give to the church. It's not wrong to be type A. I'm not, but bless y'all who are. It's not wrong to use your gifts for the good of your family and for your church and to glorify God, but it is a sin to make an idol of things. 
It's a sin to make an idol of our business or our money or our nice house or our nice things. See, it's not wrong to work for them. It's not wrong to want them. But if they are our highest good, if they're the thing we desire more than being with God's people, it's a sin. It's a sin. So as we go through our daily lives, as we do our work, the question we need to ask ourselves is not how many possessions have I given away so I can go live in a Buddhist monastery and sleep on the floor. It's what's the story am I telling myself? Am I deep down saying I don't need God? I don't need his people and these things are more important? And I don't need help in getting them because I've got it? Because if that's the thing we're telling ourselves, that is a sin. See, we, we profess often here in church. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. But one of the things he's teaching us these days and many other things is to really mean that. Really mean it. He's teaching us to mean our help is in the name of the Lord alone. But notice too, this is not the first time somebody in the line of promise has done this sin. Has, has turned aside, given his sons in, in marriage to a foreign woman and in fact in in Ruth 4, verse 12, we actually get a little reference to who else did this. And we find out it's the same family. It's from the same family. Who else turned aside, gave sons in marriage to foreign women, and had his sons die? It's Judah. Judah did this. He went from among his brothers, from his father and his people, Israel. Judah turned aside to foreign women and gave his, his sons to a foreign woman. But notice, too, that Judah's sons and Alimelech's sons got the same result. They died. And this brings us to a couple practical points of application. First is, sin doesn't have unique or joyous or outcomes. We like to kid ourselves. We like to say, well, I can get away with this sin. I know other people have done it and they've fallen, and I know other people have really messed up their lives in doing this, but I'm different. I'm special. We, we like to fool ourselves. The clear command of God in this situation was don't do this. Don't bring a Moabite into my people. Don't marry a Moabite. Marry in the Lord. And that's true for both Testaments. Missionary dating is not God's will for our lives. It's not his pattern for our evangelism. Ruth is a gracious exception to the rule. Ruth. God brings Ruth in by his grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and grafts her into his people. But the rule is Orpah who goes back to her pagan people, her pagan church, and her pagan pursuits, the instant there's no longer any benefit to being with Naomi and with her sons to the death. But not only that, sin does have consequences. Sin does have consequences. Ali Malik led his family into Moab because his highest good was being a self-made man and doing it by his own strength. But these things came at a price. Came at a price. Ali Malik died outside of the land. Elimelech's sons marry outside the Lord. And it says that they stayed in Moab for 10 years. He died, but they were still there, and they died there. His sons died there. So the patterns we set do have consequences, and they have an impact long after we're gone. But here's the good news. We serve a God who whose goodness and mercy pursue his people even when they're wandering far from him. 
It's too good to leave his people in their sin, trusting in themselves and far from him. And he's going to use any means necessary. He can use the carrot. He can use blessings. But he will also use the stick of hard providences to draw us back to himself. And, and he draws us to himself in his mercy even when we seem to fight it at every turn. And this brings us to our second point, Naomi's bitterness. Naomi's bitterness. Look at Naomi's trajectory through all this. What's she doing? She thinks she has it good. She's, she's reaped the benefits of a life of sinful wandering, but she thought she had it good, that she was okay following her husband in his sin. She thought she had it made in Moab. Like we looked at a couple minutes ago in verse 21, she says, I went out full and the Lord brought me back empty. Naomi doesn't see how lost she was yet. Naomi doesn't see that it was really her misplaced trust in her husband. And her two kids, Sicky and Leaky, the names are Sick and Leak Guy. It was her sin, her misplaced trust in Moab and in her husband and in her sons that got her where she is. And where she is is a sad spot. We don't realize this, we don't think in these terms, but she's a desolate widow woman in the ancient Near East, and she's away from her covenant people. She doesn't have family in Moab. If she stays in Moab, she's outside of the land, she's not with God's covenant people, and she's not under the protections God has in the law for her. If Naomi stays in Moab one, much longer, she's going to have one career option open to provide for herself, and that's the world's oldest profession. But see, this is where sin leaves us. It promises everything. It promises everything we need, everything we could possibly want if we give a little piece of ourselves to it. And it ends up demanding every part of ourselves be slave to it, selling even our inmost being to it. And this is where we are outside the grace of God. We may try to leave God's house of bread. We may try to leave his people, his church, his provision. And we might try and seek our rest. Our rest and everything we were made for, our ease, our safety, our security, our well-being, and our comfort, and our joy, and all of this, we might try to leave, and, and apart from His grace, we would leave and seek our own sinful, prideful ambitions and our own idols. But again, we serve a God who's too good to let us do this. We serve a God who's too good to leave us in our idolatry and our sin and our false hopes and our pride. God is too good not to draw Naomi and you and me and those he loves to himself, even if it means taking away everything that distracts us. Naomi doesn't see this yet. Naomi doesn't see this yet. Look at what she's saying to her daughters-in-law. She's trying to send her daughters-in-law back to their families, their foreign gods, their pagan church, and away from God's provision. See, she's asking them to trust for God's provision in any place and in any way except the one place God has promised him. His people and his land. Notice what Naomi even, even blesses them. She prays while she's sending them away that the Lord would bless them with his grace. The word here that we translate as may God show his kindness to you is often translated as steadfast love or grace. It's a good translation to say may he show his kindness to you. It really is. But see, this is what she's wishing. She's wishing that the Lord would give his goodness, his grace to his people, his covenant love to them. And she's praying also that the Lord would give them his rest. Notice this, rest is a big word. It's what we were made for. It's what Sabbath pointed to. It's what the land pointed to. And, and, and it's everything we were made for, everything we were longing 
24, and where is she asking that they'll find these things? In the house of your own husband. House of a Moabite husband. Naomi's praying that they're going to find God's grace and his rest anywhere but the one place he's promised it. With his in his presence with his people in his land. See, Naomi still has the wrong hopes. Notice this in verse 12. If I should even say I have hope, if I should have a husband. She's still looking for hope in a husband. She's still looking for hope in all the wrong places. Naomi doesn't see the full value of what's hers in belonging to the Lord and in going back to his people. She just knows it's gotten as bad as it can get in Moab. <laughs> see, Naomi hasn't learned yet that the Lord chastens those he loves. She didn't learn her Heidelberg. She hasn't learned that everything God sends us comes not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. And all things must work for my salvation. Must work for my salvation. Naomi hasn't learned that the Lord chastens those he loves because he's good. Because he's too good not to discipline us. It's not because he doesn't love us. It's not because he doesn't love us. It's because he loves us too much that he chastens us. But see, Naomi is still saying stuff like, the Lord's hand is against me. Or as one father translated it, the Lord's hand has left me. But see, the opposite is true. It's because the Lord is for Naomi. It's because he loves her. And it's because his hand is with her that he's done all that he's done. This isn't inspired scripture, but one English poet and pastor put this very clearly in the previous right. Behind God's frowning providence, God's his frowning face. See, Naomi and you and I have a little Joel Osteen that lives in our hearts, deep in the old man part of town down there. And little Joel Osteen in our hearts looks at us and he says, God has a great plan for, or a wonderful plan for your life. And because he has a wonderful plan for your life, that means you can't possibly ever suffer or go through anything hard. But see, the opposite is true. God has a wonderful plan for our lives. And that means we're going to suffer, not just for his sake, but even the things he sends us, both to chasten us and just to draw us closer to himself. And he's conforming us into the image of his beloved son as he does this. And he's making us rely on him and throw ourselves on him and throw ourselves on his mercy and lean on him and trust his provision in ways we wouldn't have imagined had he not chastened us. And he does it so that we'll live with him and glorify him and enjoy him forever. That's his wonderful plan for our lives. He loves us too much to leave us in Moab. He loves us too much to leave us trusting in our idols, in our sin, and in ourselves. Naomi doesn't see this yet, but Ruth does. See, the text says Ruth clung to Naomi. Notice, too, that the verb clung, or clung here is the same verb we see in Genesis 2 when God makes marriage. What does Adam say? He says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. See, Ruth understands she married into the line of promise and that's a precious thing, and it's worth leaving everything for. In choosing to go with Naomi, Ruth is choosing Naomi, and that's an important thing. And we can't gloss over the incredible kindness that Ruth is showing 
that Ruth is choosing to endure the trials of dangerous roads and lay aside any help she has from Moab and from her people and go into a land where the only guarantee she has is suffering. And, and she is really going there to provide for Naomi to feed her and to save Naomi's life, and she's doing it without expectations of any payment in return. All of that is true, but more importantly, so that's true, she's choosing Naomi, but more importantly, Ruth is choosing the Lord. She's choosing the Lord. She understands that it's better to serve the Lord in absolute squalor than it is to live in Moab, even though Moab is where her family and her chances of wealth and good fortune and well-being and a hot new Moabite husband might be. But now we come briefly to our third and final point, the provision of our God. The provision of God. How is God acting in this chapter? We've heard some lies from Naomi about how she thinks he is. But how have we seen him acting in this chapter? Well, first we've seen already how in his goodness and mercy, God pursues Naomi relentlessly and brings her back into the people of God. And we can see how Ruth is becoming a picture of all that God has promised that's going to happen in the New Testament. See, Ruth's an Old Testament exception, but she's a picture of all that God's going to do at Pentecost when he pours out the Spirit and brings in people who were previously his enemies. And now they're believers from every tribe and tongue and nation. So that's part of it. And they come back to Bethlehem in the time of the barley harvest. So God's providing physical food for them, and he's going to feed them and save their lives. But it also means because it's at barley harvest, Notice this, it's in the time of barley harvest, which means it's probably in the month of Nisan. So there's probably going to be a Passover that they're going to partake of. And so they're going to be brought back to God's people, not just physically in the land, but also by Old Testament sacraments. And they're being pointed to the seed of the woman to come. Yes, God's going to give them a good gift of a physical baby, and that's good. And it's even going to be part of this line, but they're being pointed to the promise of Christ, right? And they're going to have the deliverance of him. All of this is how God's been acting. There's, there's one more important thing we need to notice here. God's provision here of a picture of his son. See, as one pastor pointed out, I think he's absolutely right. One wise pastor pointed out, Boaz isn't the only type of Christ in this book. He's not the only picture of all that Christ will be. Boaz is the obvious one, right? Boaz, as, as, as the Old Testament, as God in the Old Testament paints a picture all that Christ is going to be when he comes. We see in Boaz a type of Christ, how he's going to be our redeemer, our brother who buys us back and restores us to our place in God's presence and keeps us there forever and gives us back all that we lost in Adam. And that's definitely part of this. This is a type of Christ. But there's another one in our chapter tonight. There's another type of Christ in this book. It's the Old Testament. paints a picture of who Christ is going to be. We see another one. It's one pastor. Now, Ruth leaves her glory. She leaves her inheritance. She leaves all that she has. She empties herself. And she follows God's lost sheep, Naomi, and rapidly pursues her, and feeds her, and becomes the means of redemption for her. And she takes a life as good as that. who's going to come from the line of David. And notice, too, God's using Ruth to start the line of David. 
And in the time when the judges judge, when the people of Israel are doing what's right in their own eyes, and Elimelech is living out a mini version of all the sin of Israel, in a time when it seems bleak for God's people, and it seems like the line of promise is over, and the plan failed, we, we see that God's one big story, his plan of salvation didn't fail, it didn't change, and it didn't stop. It's still going. God's still advancing his plan to bring his son, the Messiah, into the world to save his people. And he relentlessly pursues his people, Naomi, and he draws Naomi to himself through his hard providence, through his suffering, her sufferings. And God shows us a picture of Christ in Ruth the Moabites, and he takes her, and he turns her from one of God's worst enemies into a mother of his son. And he makes her a picture of Christ in her Christ-likeness to Naomi. See, and the good news is this is the God we serve. This is the God we serve, and his plan of salvation never fails. And we can trust him, trust him, because he is the one who doesn't fail, whose promises don't change, and who brought his son through this line of fallible people. And he saved us. He became like us. He lived for us, and he died for us, and he, and he rose again for us. He seated at the right hand of the Father for us. He's our better Ruth. Come to him. Trust in him. Because his plan didn't fail. you join with me in thanking him for so great a salvation. Lord, we thank you for the one big story of your salvation to all peoples through your son. We thank you that you do not forsake your own. You pursue us. Lord, how often don't we fight you? How often don't we see that the, the hard phone calls, the the illnesses, the trials we face in this life are not you being against us, but you being for us. Lord, we thank you that your son came to save us. Help us to live in light of that reality. Help us to trust you for our provision. Trust you to look after us and pursue us defeat us, redeem us. We thank you that all your promises are yes and amen in Jesus. Thank you, Lord. We pray again in Jesus. Amen. Our song of response this evening is number 228, number 1, or verses 1, and then 4 through 7. Verse 1, and then verses 4 through 7 of 228. Thank you.